Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Kevin, guess what? What, Rob? We now have over 50 iTunes reviews. <sighs> Huzzah! Huzzah! Indeed! Oh. We are climbing those iTunes rating charts. That's amazing. Yeah. How do we climb even higher? Can you take <laughs> me high enough? Little Rock of Ages for you. Do you know I like that you took it up so high too? You didn't even. You like went right to the tenor place. I was gonna do climb. no Robert Goulet. Like, no. Can you take me high enough? Thanks for coming out tonight. Ooh, and my falsetto there. <laughs> Thank you. And a little Sergio Frankie. Yeah, a little Sergio. It's never over. <laughs> Much like the 24-hour buffet down in the lobby of the Dunes Casino. Me and Sid the Caesar. Two nights only at the Mirage. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Well, lovely listeners, this is where you come in. This is how we're going to climb those iTunes rating charts. That's right. Lovely listeners, if you love us, would you go to iTunes? Click on the iTunes store. Search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. That's right. And you can leave comments, too, like, Kevin Thomas is a god. Or, Rob, who the hell is Hervé Villachez? Who, 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 who is Hervé Via, uh, via that dude oh from my God. I fell for it See? again. You fell for <laughs> that it. wasn't even the, the man script. has never done <laughs> one musical in his entire life, and he gets mentioned more than Stephen. Right, Sondheim. but I love him from James the Bond. Okay, anyway, oh, yes. guys, help us out, please. please. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rob Schneider, and I'm Kevin David Thomas, and this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And Follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. I promise we'll post more pictures. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest has made a really good career for himself for being an uncle. From The Secret of Uncle Anthony and Lucky Stiff to Creepy Uncle Ernie and the Who's Tommy, which garnered him a Tony nomination, our guest has had a lot of onstage nieces and nephews in his career. Plus, his incredible voice has been heard in Titanic, Jesus Christ Superstar, and where so many of us first fell in love with him, Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame, where he played Clopin. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Des Mackinoff, Aronson Flaherty, Alan Menken, here is everyone's favorite villain and one of the nicest guys in the business, Paul Kandel. Hi, everybody. Hi, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Sitting in my own living room, talking with these two extraordinary gentlemen. Happy to be here and tell tales. Yes! <laughs> we like to hear. Thank oh. you, Paul. I cannot tell you how many of our listeners, as soon as we started this podcast, have said to us, can you please get Paul on the show? So I am so happy that you're sitting here with us today. It I'd means... like every one of those people to send me five American dollars in an envelope. <laughs> <laughs> to an undisclosed address. Did you ever hear that? Was that? Remember the Soupy Sales thing? Did you ever hear that? Where Soupy Sales was a TV star, children's TV star, and he told yes, all the kids. I remember Soupy Sales, but didn't he say put X money in an envelope and send yeah. it to me? Yes. Well, yes. there you go. I've I've dredged it up from the back of my unconscious because I watched Soupy Sales. Soupy Sales is here. Where did you grow up, Paul? I grew up in uh, Far Sills, Queens. Oh. Uh, I went to school upstate New York at SUNY Binghamton. Then I trained for two years here in New York with an extraordinary teacher named Fred Cameron, and then started to work. 
So that was in the days when stages were made of stone. Did you did you know that you were going to be an actor? Did you know that from an early age? Uh, no, I, I was going to be a doctor. I was firstborn son in a Jewish family, so the stethoscope was thrown into the bassinet. <laughs> uh, and I was a good science student, and I wanted to be a doctor. I was also very heavy, uh, very, very overweight. Really? Uh-huh. Uh, I'm I'm quite thin now, and uh, I have been for most of my Paul's life. Very but at, thin. at the height of my uh, chubbiness, I weighed about 240. So you could sort of roll me into certain rooms wow. or squeeze me through the door. So uh, it's puberty. All of my friends are dating, and I'm not. Uh, so I, right at the end of high school, I lost weight, and I got my first girlfriend. Then I went to college. First girlfriend dumps me. I go to college. And I'm in pre-med, and all the girls in pre-med look like, rather than being doctors, they're going to be truck drivers. There was not a pretty girl there. There were, however, beautiful girls in the theater and dance department. (laughs) So I thought, I think I'd rather be there. So I switched my major, ended my relationship with my father for about 10 years. (laughs) And uh, that's how I got started, honestly. So that is absolutely great. So did you know that you had some inkling for theater, though, at all before you went to college? Yes, because when I was heavy, the the cure for heaviness is you either get tough or you get funny. Yeah, that's that's a theme. So I was quite good at entertaining my friends in order to have any friends. Yeah. And uh, I'm still pretty good at being funny, but but it, it was that sense of myself that allowed me to move over to be a theater major, and I ended up enjoying it. I enjoyed it better than the uh, uh, advanced chemistry courses that I was taking, which were difficult, and so I thought, I'll do this. When you were living in Queens, did you come see any shows in New York at that time? Yes. Coming to the theater was a big part of my childhood. My parents were big uh, theater goers. Uh, So I started going when I was a kid. Uh, First show? Plays. Oh, God. Man for All Seasons, I think. Oh, wow. Play, wow. With Paul Schofield. Dang. And ironically, uh, and one of my favorite actors, I mean, if I could be Paul Schofield for five minutes, I'd give all the toes on one foot. And ironically, a hundred years later, I was doing Christmas Carol with Roddy McDowell. And Roddy McDowell had the dressing room across from me. And he had a, a a cork board where he put all of his opening night greetings, which came from anybody and everybody you've ever heard of in show business and politics. It was unbelievable. And one of them was from Paul Schofield. And I thought, oh, my God, Roddy, let me hold it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wild. Any of the musicals that you saw? Uh, Yes, first musical that I saw alone... Where I got to go from Queens on the subway into the city alone was My Fair Lady. How old were you? Oh, maybe 12. Wow. Wow. 12-year-old riding the subway from Queens to New York. Yes, it was entirely safe at that time. And I knew precisely how to get to the theater. And I can remember as if it was earlier this morning, sitting in my seat, seeing the conductor who was a great-looking conductor, an older guy with a shock of gray hair, step up, take his bow, turn around, and 
Oh, hit the downbeat for that incredible overture. Yeah. I almost died. Oh. Really? It was so exciting. A, I was alone in the city for the first time yeah. getting to see a show on my own. It was that extraordinary show. Uh, a guy named Michael Allenson had taken over the role of Higgins by that point. It wasn't Rex Harrison anymore. The show had been playing for a couple of years. But it's it's a mag it it, it it it's 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 a breathtaking piece of work. Yeah. And it was beautifully acted and for a kid of that age it was it was uh, a never forget experience. Mm. So it's wow. on cloud nine. I was on cloud twelve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you go up you go up to college, you switch your majors. What shows were you doing in college? Oh, what did I do in college? Boy, this is a long time ago, man. Um, <laughs> I, I did what cabaret. I, did, okay. I did cabaret. Played the MC in cabaret. Of yes. course. And my oldest friend, who is a working actor now, his name is Mitch Greenberg, uh, fantastically talented guy, uh, was uh, who is basically an actor, but he's also an incredible musician. Uh, was the musical director for that? Oh, so wow. I, I did that. I did uh, a, 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 a play called uh, J. Robert Oppenheimer, which is about Oppenheimer's uh, trial where he lost his security clearance. Oh, God. But I did a, a, a Goldoni piece called The Servant of Two Masters. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. yes, yes, of course. A comedia piece. I think that was my thesis. So it sounds like you, you, you did across the spectrum. You didn't just stay with musical theater. You were No, no, I were, never... No, I, know, I didn't think of myself as a singer at all. Oh, I mean, I did some singing in college, but I didn't think of myself in those terms. I was an actor. Yes. Oh, okay. And uh, my my training, which was Meisner technique, when I finished with college, I finished with college. I applied to Juilliard, Yale, and and got in. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I thought, you know what? I've had enough of school. I don't want to go to school anymore. <laughs> and a friend of mine had uh, Mitch. Uh, yeah, Greenberg, who I just mentioned, had uh, was was a year ahead of me. Went to the neighborhood playhouse, which teaches that same Meisner yeah, my technique. Yeah. So I asked him how he was enjoying the training. He was, and he said, "You know, but it's a school; it's a little bit regimented." So I researched and I found out that two of the teachers from that school also taught privately, Bill Esper and Freddie Caraman. Yeah, I interviewed with them both. I preferred Freddie, so I studied with him for two years privately. Wow. What made Freddie such a good teacher? Uh, two things, I would say. And he was, he was the, the, the f- one of the finest teachers I've ever encountered. Uh, one of them was what he had to teach. Here was a tool that you could use to ply a craft. There was nothing mysterious about it. He said, I'm going to give you a tool that's simple to understand and hard to use. And you'll spend your life trying to use it well. Wow. And it's a craft. It's like building a cabinet. It's like uh, 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 installing pipes in an apartment building. It is a craft. Mm. And if you're very lucky, if you ply that craft well or you have an enormous talent, you'll elevate that craft to an art. But before you are going to be an artist, you need to be a craftsman. You have to have tools in your 
in your toolbox in order to know how how do you approach your work? How do you how do, how do you do what what you intend to do? So he was teaching simple something simple to understand and hard to do and that really appealed to me. Yeah. Then there are some people who are just born to teach that have the capacity to create the environment in which people are comfortable failing. Because failure is the only route to success. And failing is uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. So how do you create an environment where failure is just fine? Because it leads to success. But you've got to have the environment in which you can fail 15 times in a row and feel good about it. Feel, okay, that was good. I learned something from that. I'm moving towards in the direction I need to go. So that when you have that little ping of success, it's absolutely thrilling, but it's not what you need. What you need is to learn. Mm. And so Freddie could say, Paul, yeah, terrible. Terrible and no criticism. No mm. criticism. Terrible. And you weren't crushed by that. You were, all right, I didn't do it. I wonder why. And he would help you learn why. And so the art of creating an environment where failure is welcome as the path to success is an art. Mm. You've got a whole bunch of different personalities in the room. There are some people to whom the idea of not doing well is inimical. You know, they've everything else they've ever done in their life, they've, they're striving to do well. And in this environment, there's no striving to do well. There's just striving to do the work. That's and hilarious. that it, to, to create that environment is an art, and, and he did. And I sent him... Wow. So when I finished studying, I continued to study to learn to teach from him for two years while I was beginning my career as an actor. And, you know, you watch from one point of view when you're a student actor, you watch another from another point of view when you're a student teacher. True. And I would watch him turn a class around and think, well, I, I don't, I'll, I'll never be able to do that. I mean, and I never ended up teaching. Oh. But I learned quite a bit from him, you know, a, a, as far as his technique. But that singular capacity to create that environment is very hard to come by. So I loved him then. He's since passed away. I sent him many students. They were all very happy. That's um, the legacy that one teacher can have on so many lives. Oh, is, my God. magical. And, yeah. yeah. And, and Bill Esper, who was one of the other teachers yeah. from the Playhouse, has a legion of followers in the same way yes, indeed. A, as uh, uh, did Meisner. Yeah. So, wow. you know, everyone has their teacher that they loved. Yeah. Fred, Fred was mine, and I carry the tools that he gave me in my toolbox still. Oh, there, were, uh, there are a lot more tools that I sort of made myself out sure. of little pieces of paper and sure. <laughs> yes, of course. stuck in the box yeah. in the course of 40 years oh, or yeah. more. When you graduated school and you came up here, were you auditioning for all types of things, musicals, plays, commercials, or were you very single-focused in what you were trying to get a job in? Uh, the, uh, oh, um, hmm. I wasn't auditioning for musicals. Uh, 
because I didn't think of myself as a singer. I Did really you ever didn't. take any voice lessons, or was just no. something natural? That just no. Wow. No. I mean, because I didn't think of myself as a singer, so none of my, I, I, you know, I can't read music. Yeah. So I thought, well, I can't read music, and I'm not a singer. I'll, you know, I'm an actor. Uh, I didn't have an agent for a long time, so the only thing I had access to really were open equity auditions, connections through friends, uh, and so uh, plays mainly, or plays with some music in them, but certainly didn't think of myself as a singer. How did you get your equity card? Uh, I got, uh, there was an interesting <laughs> way <laughs> you could do it at the beginning of time. Yeah. Uh, 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 I got an offer to do an industrial film. Didn't pay much. Uh, it was sort of through a friend of a friend that I got the audition, uh -huh. then I got the job. It was no big job. It was like a day's work. Yeah. But that would allow you, once you got the letter of intent from that producer, you could get your SAG card. Now, that was expensive. The SAG initiation fee was more than I was going to earn from that job. Totally. But I was permitted to join SAG. Yeah. And in those days, if you were a member of SAG, you could also become a member of Equity. So that's how I became a member of Equity. And my, my SAG card says member since 1973. Huh. So long time. Yeah, totally. Uh, so that's how I got to be a member of Equity. And uh, I had done some non-equity jobs prior to that, mm -hmm. dinner theater, this yeah. and that, that I got through, you know, open calls you would read backstage. Yeah, totally. Uh, and then my first equity job was a show called uh, um, Nightclub Cantata, which was Elizabeth Suedo's first piece. Some people would know her from Runaways on Broadway. Yeah. Sure. My wife and I were in that piece together. Which is how you met? Uh, yes. No, no, it's not how we oh, met. Okay. We All met right. before that. Um, so that was a, our, our both of our first equity jobs. When you auditioned for musicals, yeah. when you did, what was your audition song? Did you have a go-to song in your book? Uh, early on? Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I, I did On the Street Where You Live. It's a good song for tenor. Uh, but because I can't bear to do the expected, uh, I would do on the street where you live, walking down the street, you know, you do a little move, you walk down the street, and I would step in shit, <laughs> slip on it, see that it was on my shoe, and be uh, making my best effort through the rest of the number to get it off my shoe in a way that no one would notice. That's this genius. sometimes that is uh, original and smart. <laughs> well, sometimes yes, and sometimes no. There were times where it worked extraordinarily well, and people would. Uh, it, it was very funny. Yeah. It was really funny, and so sometimes people really appreciated my sense of humor and that I was doing something unusual, and they'd be surprised. I would certainly sing the first half of the song absolutely straight, so that they could see that. I could act it, that right. I could sing it, that I had the notes, uh, and then I would have my little slip. <laughs> so some people very much appreciated that I took it in another direction, and some people, their head went down, uh -huh. and I knew I was dead and out of the room. <laughs> so 
you know, I have a sort of singular approach to my work that uh, either appeals to you or doesn't. Uh, and I feel like an artist's uh, decisions on how to use their gift are absolutely crucial. Uh, and they've always been very important to me. So I've always been very willing to take the risk to let people see who I am. That's a great... Yeah, so that's so important. So if you don't want somebody who's a risk taker, if you want somebody who is going to toe the line... Safe. Yeah. Uh, I, I would be afraid to use that word, but I, I would say... It, it is the artist's responsibility to bring into the room and audition their gift. That's your responsibility in an audition. It's mm -hmm. like uh, 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 the first read-through. Mm -hmm. So that's what you need to bring into the room, not... I wonder what they want to hear. What do they want to hear? Let me, let me, you know, how did this guy do it? How has this been done in the past? Totally. That's... In for for my taste, that that's the that that is spitting on your own talent. When you say on your own gift, first read through, expand on that. So when a first read through, which is always the I feel like the craziest thing when everyone gets together. We just had one the other yeah. night, and it's you 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 want to see originality. You want to see people bringing their art forward and present, and not trying to copy what's been done before well the, you know in the first read through of something there there are no expectations you're approaching the work for the first time so you're not trying to prove anything because you've already got the job and you're just there to throw yourself at the work and 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 see what happens mm -hmm. well that's exactly what should be happening in an audition mm -hmm. and there's the tendency among uh, you know, I, I have disagreements with friends of mine, or sometimes, you know, I'll uh, I, I have a couple of accompanists that that I use to if I have to prepare for an audition, and they send you new music, and then they'll help me learn it because I can't read music, and then I'll start working on it, and they'll go, "Oh, you better not do that," and I'll go, "Why?" And they go, "Well, it's written," you know, they'll be very specific, and I'll go, "I don't care." Because if they hire me, this is what I would do. This is what I would do. This is what my heart tells me to do. Mm -hmm. And that if they hate that, A, that uh, whoever is the director or musical director is not going to want me in the room, and that's okay. okay. That's their choice. Yeah. And if I don't do that, I will walk into the room and be dishonest. Yeah. And that's the end of your art. So, you know, I, I can say that I've had uh, 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 mixed responses at auditions. Either people respond very strongly one way or the other. Right. Either I'm the type of person they, they want to work with or not. Right. And if it's not, I think, okay, because we probably would have been a bad mix. And whatever show they're doing may turn out to be extraordinary. But I wouldn't have fit in well. Mm. So it's just as well that I'm not in it. Mm. Not that I'm there to shock anybody or to do something disrespectful or inappropriate. Just I really feel that it's my responsibility to honor 
the gift that I was given. Uh, and in the times that I've taught, uh, it, it's something I really stress. Mm -hmm. If you have that gift, if you were lucky enough to get it, you need to respect it. You need to nourish it. Mm. And you need to own it. And owning it has nothing to do with figuring out what they want to hear or what somebody else did. It has everything to do with being in touch with your gift and letting it take you where it takes you. And if it takes you to a place that doesn't fit in with the, the uh, team on the other side of the table's idea of what they need, then it doesn't. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be you're too tall. Yeah, I don't like the fact that you look like Nosferatu, which is sometimes <laughs> worked against me. Um, yeah. You, know, uh, you, you have to bring your gift into the room. And that's it. Mm -hmm. That's all you have as an artist. You have to be brave enough to bring it into the room. You have to be joyous enough to bring it into the room and share it fully, you know, which is scary, just like every time you step on the stage. You know, can I do it? Can I give it up? Um, so it's hard to do that, but I think it's incumbent. Mm -hmm. And when you do it, even if they put their heads down, which I've had happen, <laughs> you go, okay, fine. I did what I intended to do. I shared my gift in the way I understand it. And if that's not going to work for this circumstance, it's not. What can I do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't leave auditions feeling like, shit, shit, you know, I missed that note. It's not going to be about that. Directors will always tell you that. They're not, you know, oh, I'm the D. You didn't get the D, man. There's something ineffable when somebody walks into the room that if, you know, you go, that's the guy. Mm -hmm. Or that's not the guy. <laughs> that guy's very, very talented, very nice, not the guy. So that's what I think you have to bring into the room and, and have to bring to your work. Yeah. Mm. Which also, you know, is de depending on the director, is sometimes a comfortable circumstance and sometimes you, you need to argue it out. <laughs> so, Do you like the process of auditioning? No, I hate it. You hate it? Yeah, I do. The way it's done in this country. For example, I've auditioned for a lot of Brits. Brits look at auditions as a work session. They yes. don't think of it as come and prove to me how good you are or come in and prove to me that you... There, there's none of that. Mm -hmm. They hate auditions. I've had an assortment of notable Brit directors whose names I won't say who've said to me, I'm sorry we have to do this. If I was back home, I would just... Cast this for my Rolodex. I, I know everybody. I know who I want. I know who I need. I, I would never have an audition. I would never humiliate somebody that I had already worked with mm. by asking them to audition for me. But it's the way it's done here. So let's just work. That's what they'll say. Let's work. So you have that feeling that you're in the midst of a work session. And they'll give you some adjustments. So they'll say, that's interesting. That's interesting. How did you come to that? And I, I'd say how I came to it and say, you know, there's something, I, I, I come to it from a, a very different place, and they'll say that, and, and that, that'll be fascinating to me, and I'll go, God, that gives me, an idea. can I try something? So you're just working. That's great. To walk into a room where there's a tribunal of people sitting behind the table who 
don't introduce themselves sometimes, uh, where you're not invited over and saying this, you know, Paul, this is blah, blah, blah. It would take two or three minutes, and sometimes it does happen. Yeah. You know, during the periods of my career when I was a tastier morsel, Mm -hmm. it would certainly happen. Or they'd know me the minute I walked in the room and get up, the director would come over and say hello. There are other circumstances where you walk in and it's like the Nuremberg Trials. Yeah. And it's it's just inimical to doing good work, to feel that level of judgment in the room, not to be welcomed. You know, Paul Candell, and then you walk in and there's the judges. Mm-hmm. It's very unhealthy, I think. Although... You know, you have to be prepared for it, and you have to be able to take a minute and and go, okay, I came here to do my work. I'm going to do it in the most generous possible way. But I do have to take a minute to gather myself and uh, sort of elevate myself above this environment because the energy in this room is very judgmental and, 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 and inimical to my doing what I intend to do. Mm. So you have to take that moment to go, okay, okay, why are you here? What did you come here to do? And reorient yourself in order to do that. Uh, it's hard. In, in, yeah, it's very hard. Yeah. So in, it varies. Sometimes auditions are welcoming. Sometimes uh, uh, with the right director, they make a point mm. of making you feel comfortable, not feeling judged, uh, uh, you're just there to work. It depends. Yeah. Auditions are a tough thing. You know, the, the best directors I find uh, uh, w- would would love to avoid them. A, a necessary evil. Yes. True story. Yeah. Yeah. True story. Indeed. How does Lucky Stiff come into your life? Uh, it was uh, an audition. It was Lynn and Steve's first show. Yeah. Um, I did one of my crazy pieces. I don't remember what it was. There were other crazy yeah, pieces there, other there are, there than on the street where you live, Paul? Because yeah, yeah. I would love to hear the other I, versions I, you know, that you had. I don't remember exactly what I did for them. It might have been that. Yeah. I d- or something else. I had I had a few. <laughs> I mean, I, I think love you had that. to sing two songs. Yeah. Uh, Tommy Walsh was the director who was incredibly nervous for some reason. Uh, and Lynn and Steve were in the room who I'd never met. And you had to do two songs. So I did one song straight just to let them hear my voice. And then I did one of my crazy songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't remember which one it was, but it involved me coming down from the stage into the house. And uh, <laughs> I, I just made Lynn crack up. <laughs> but Tommy was very nervous. He was running around and asking questions and this and that, and I thought... You were at you know, a theater? I, you were actually... We, we were at Playwrights, right oh across goodness. the street, yeah. in the old Playwrights yeah. Horizons. Yeah. It was on the stage in the That's theater. where you auditioned, got it. Yeah. So I had a great time, but I thought, you know, I think this Tommy Walsh guy, uh, I think I was a little bit too much for him, although I think Lynn and Steve liked me. So eventually I, I did get the job. It was tremendous fun, you know, for their first crack out of the box. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. The music was fantastic. It was great fun to sing. Great cast. I had an incredibly good time doing that show. And in that little itty-bitty theater, audiences just loved it. So you had people doing uh, good work, 
with a fantastic uh, show uh, very early on for a, 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 a team that would do incredible work as time went on. But it was exciting for them. It was their you know, first crack out of the box and people are going crazy. And no one had heard that. I feel like Flaherty and Aaron's, you know, gave us ragtime and rock and all these once in the silent. No one had heard that kind of music before musical theater. I mean, their their voice is very specific and I, we don't talk enough about Flaherty and Aaron's and what they've done for musical theater, I no, think, it's sometimes. pretty incredible. It, but for it, their first show, I mean... Absolutely. Musically, um, uh, for example, there's a song that takes place on a train and it was actually written in 5-4 uh, in order to give you that off-center one, two, feeling. Three, four, like five, when the one, train two, three, four, five. One, <laughs> two, three, four, five. Very, yeah. That's so cool. Or one, two, three, one, two. Yeah, one, two, one, two, three. Yeah. One, two. And the one, two was the little jog that the train gives you. So it was written in that off-kilter way to help you feel the off-kilter uh, jiggling of the train. Yeah. Very, And it was a choral number so you know very hard to teach jeff saver was the musical director incredibly talented guy he was also young at that time mm -hmm. younger even than me i think i was yay maybe in my early 30s when mm -hmm. i did that um uh, Mary Testa was in it. Yeah. Funniest woman. And for those who may not know Lucky Stiff off the top of their heads, can you give us a little, if you remember the rundown of the of the, the plot? There was a death, I remember. It was kind of like Weekend in Bernie's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it, it's too complicated to say. People will have just look up Lucky okay. Stiff and it'll right. give the plot because it's, it's slightly convoluted. There's a plot. lot going on in it. But, but yeah. it's, it's, it's I, would, I don't know if you would agree with me, I would consider it a farce. It's one of those. Oh, yeah. it's, it's it's a and we don't really see those in musicals all that often. Yes, it's it's a door slamming farce yep. set to music. Yeah, about a guy who has to take his dead uncle to uh, Monte Cristo. There you go to yeah. Monte yeah. Carlo. Yeah. yeah, and who did you play? You were I was the uh, uh, I did the voice of the uncle in the wheelchair, and I played. Uh, a character named Luigi Gaudi. Luigi Gaudi. And Luigi Gaudi's function was? You know, I can't remember. You're talking about a long time oh, ago. Oh, yeah. He was a tour guide. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah. I swear the to tour God. Guide. I don't. I'll tell you you were great in it, though. So there you go. That's all you need to remember. Thanks. And, and, right? and the cast album is preserved. Oh, yeah. Well, there's the original cast yeah. album. And we also did another cast album. Uh, later on, 2005, I think, around then. Yeah. Okay, that yeah. sounds good. So, but it was just great fun to sing. Yeah. And funny. I mean, you'd stand backstage and watch other people doing a scene and laugh at it, you know, months into the run. So, uh, it it started a relationship with Lynn and Steve for me. I, uh, you know, right at the start of their careers, Lynn had already been a successful. Uh, lyricist in other areas it was really the beginning for steve he was still playing auditions <laughs> oh, for wow. people at the time wow. of that show because uh, after it i went to a couple of auditions and there's steve behind the piano this brilliant guy who wrote this show that i was just in and going you're playing the auditions you're gonna need the money man <laughs> yeah. yeah survival job so true so true do you ever feel like you've had a specific moment like that in your career where all the stars did align I've had a few. Uh, I'm trying to think of uh, notable ones where I thought, you know, I think I'm going to float off the stage. Mm. Um, my first uh, recording gig for Disney 
the first song I did for Hunchback. Um, that was a very hard job to get. A lot of auditions, a lot of callbacks, uh, you know, uh, a lot of feedback from Stephen and Alan. Okay, that was good. Try this. Can you give us that? It, it was like a, they were like work sessions. They were very generous in their auditions, and they treated them like work sessions. Mm. You did your, you were given, you know, music to learn. You yeah. did it. And they would say, okay, that's good. And they, they would give feedback, and you'd have to work with that feedback. So they were like work sessions. I get, after a long period yeah. of time, I get the job, and incredibly exciting. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then I was doing Tommy at the time. On, so we're doing eight a week. And I get a call on my day off. Can I fly out to L.A. to record a song? So that means I finish the evening show on whatever it was, Sunday. Yeah. Get on a red eye, fly to L.A., and spend the whole next day singing. Oh, wow. So I've just done eight shows and Disney, if you're working on a piece of theirs in, in those days, I don't know how it is now, and at, at, at that point they were using a lot of people from Broadway. Now it's more movie stars, mm-hmm. although there were some movie stars at that time, certainly, yeah. you know, uh, Kevin Klein and Demi Moore. Right. Hulls. But you also had Roger Bart was singing, you know, Quasimodo, and you, you had... You had Bro- that was Tom Hulse. Oh, sorry. Right. Yeah, I think Tom did all of his own singing. Oh, he did. He did. I'm thinking of Hercules. Great job, Kevin. No, no, (laughs) wrong Disney movie. No, but you're right. Sometimes when the actor can't sing, they'll have a a musical theater. That happened in in Hunchback. Uh, A friend of mine sang for Demi Moore. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, I'm there to do my first uh, job for them. And uh, in, in those days, the, the the films took three years at least to complete, uh, uh, and three this, years. as this yeah as this one did from from the first time I worked for them until it was released was three years, and and there's development work before that. It's too long a story; it'll be boring. But uh, they fired people sometimes halfway through, that not because they thought they were horrible to be the film changed, the conception yeah. of the character changed. You know, you could go away. Sure. Uh, or, you know, or they didn't like the person. You know, they've recorded two songs, and they go, and gone. So now that I've gotten the job, I'm living in the terror that right. when I go to do the job, they're going to go, hey, we made a joke. Take them away. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So it's me in a 65-piece orchestra. You recorded that live with the orchestra. I mean, like, that's... you. You First you do it live. Yeah. You know, quaking with terror uh, in order to get what, what's called a scratch vocal so yeah. that they can get the orchestra tracks the way you want them. Yeah. So you work with the musical director and Alan and Stephen and sing it over and over until all the tempi are right. Everyone's happy. Then they do three, four, five recordings of just the orchestra playing that. They make sure they're satisfied that they've got that. This is in a huge soundstage that when, when you approach the soundstage, they list all of the famous movies that have been re- where the music has been recorded there. So if I hadn't soiled myself before that point, once I saw that plaque... You know, it was depends Done. time. 
So I go in terrified. Everyone incredibly nice to me. I do my first uh, uh, sing-through with the orchestra and, you know, high point of my life, I got the, you know, tap the bowstrings against the violin. The, the, yeah. the musicians thought I was doing okay. And, I would, and that was incredibly heartwarming. I'm thinking, I hope the people in the booth do, because otherwise I'll be out of here before the end of the day. So we do the scratch vocal part. Then they dismiss the orchestra. And you have this giant soundstage, which is empty except for a music stand, a microphone, a little table with a glass of water, and one light. (laughs) And that's for me. So intimidating. (laughs) In this room the size of a football field, and it's in the middle of the room, and way in the distance you can see this little slit that's the window of the control room where Alan and Stephen and uh, Katzenberg are, and uh, a whole bunch of people are in there who could just, you know, snap their oh, yeah. fingers and fire you. Um, I was really terrified. And this happened after a lunch break. We have the lunch break. They dismiss the orchestra. And then some person, you know, a PA of some kind comes over to me and says, okay, Paul, come, come on with me. And I go with him and he opens the door and there's this big black room with that one spot. I thought, oh, God, oh, my, oh my God, oh, my God. <laughs> Who leads me over there, says, you know, if you need more water, just say so. Anything you want, some tissues, sweating, towel, whatever you need. <laughs> I'll get it for you. So I stood there for a minute, and I hear from the, you know, control room. And uh, we're about to start work, and Alan says, hold hold on a sec, hold. So I, I don't know what's going on, something they're doing, and the door that I came through opens up. I can see a little crack of light, and it's Alan. Alan Minkin, in. yeah. I think maybe I looked terrified or maybe because he's a good guy and we knew each other a little bit. He came over and he said, look, this is a little scary. I know you're in the middle of this room and there's all those people up in the booth. You're here because you were by far and away the only person who brought the heart in that we needed for this piece and has the voice to do it. And I wrote this song for you. So we've waited 20 years to work together. Relax, have a good time. I'm on your side. Just do what you know how to do. And then he went back up. This was an act of enormous humanity. uh, And it allowed me to calm down. Yeah. And then we worked eight straight hours of singing, doing that song. That one song. Yep. Do the whole song, do the whole song again, do the whole song again, do it four or five times. Then you break it down into stanzas. Then you punch in words. Wow. Very, very I meticulous had no, work. I had no idea it was that detailed for... for oh, yeah. For the, oh, yeah. Incredible. So uh, the producer at that time was a guy named Roy Conley. He was later re- replaced by a guy named Don Hahn. And he's a great guy, Roy Conley, and had been very nice to me at at the endless auditions. Yeah. He would sometimes give me a hug. <laughs> and uh, 
at the end of the session, I was just dead, and it was hard to tell whether they're happy, they're not happy, because everyone's exhausted. Mm-hmm. So I left thinking, oh, please don't let them fire me. Oh, God, I, you know, because you don't even have a sense at that point of what the whole song is going to sound like. And Roy came running out as I was going to my car, and he gave me a big hug, and he said, you aged it, man, you aged it! Yes. Doing that was a peak moment. Because, you know, doing that song, doing that job, being in that pin spot was a a peak moment because it was maximally demanding that I give it up and exactly what Alan said. It's your heart. It's your, it's you that we want. It's your art. So I had to offer that up in the midst of enormous fear. So... When you feel you're at the edge of a cliff and you might die if you jump off, that means you're at the right place as far as work is concerned. And that that. really felt that way. I dreamed a dream of days to come Where spongership is high and money is forthcoming That's beautiful, Kevin. I really added a voice onto that one, too. (laughs) I really was trying to go for something there. Listeners, we love creating this podcast, but it does cost money. Please don't make me sell my Angel record. Oh my gosh, the original cast recording of Angel. That, like, nobody has. Nobody has it. If you like what we are doing and want us to keep doing more of it, please head over to patreon.com. What? P-A-T. R-E-O-N dot com. Pat Rion. I feel like Pat Rion. <laughs> oh, yeah, Pat, Pat Rion. Rion. Pat Rion. Yeah, once you're there, search for Behind the Curtain Broadway's Living Legends. And of course, we don't expect to give without receiving some great rewards. Such rewards include behind-the-scenes videos, shout-outs on future episodes, mm. or episodes, depending on what part of the country you're from, because <laughs> I said episodes, and early access to some of our podcasts. Hell, for the right price, Kevin and I will come to your apartment and act out all of Agnes of God. <laughs> so head over, friends, to P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to help us out. Now we're going to jump back in time mm-hmm. a little bit. The Who's Tommy. Ah, uh, yes. Now, how does this come about for you? Uh, that was an audition. Um, I had worked with Des once before on another Broadway-bound musical called 80 Days, hmm. which had music by Ray Davies of the Kinks. Oh, I'm, wow. I, this is uh, news to me. I, I've it's not heard of 80 Days? Yep. And, As uh, in Around the World in? Yep. It was the story of Phileas Fogg going around <laughs> the world in 80 days. <laughs> um, and I played uh, maybe four parts. In it, uh, that that was my first gig with Des. I had auditioned for him earlier than that, way early when when he was still working down at the Public, and then the audition for Tommy came along, uh, and I almost missed it. It was all all of the important auditions in those days were at eight ninety Broadway. It's gone now, way but down, it, yeah, by Union Square, by near Union Square. Yeah. Uh, Michael Bennett yes. had, had built these studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all the hotshot auditions were there. He always went to 890. So I was there for an audition, and I finished the audition, and I'm going to the elevator, and I think, will I leave my hat? So I get back in the elevator and go up to the wrong floor. And I get out of the elevator, and there's the call board of what's happening on that floor. And there it says, Tommy. And I went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I have an audition for that thing today, and I completely forgot. I would have walked out of the building. You're kidding me. 
So I go over to the room where they were auditioning, and the door is opened, and there's Des sitting in there. I said, Des, did I, did I screw it up? Did I have an appointment earlier today? I know. I, he said, yes, you did. You made me sit here. <laughs> he said, come in, come in. So I came in, and uh, we talked a little, and he said, look, here, just take this music and learn it. So it was uh, holiday camp and fiddle about. I took it home. I learned it. I came in. I did it. I got the job. Uh, and that was uh, among the most extraordinary experiences of my life because Des is an amazingly bright guy. Amazingly bright and capable. And uh, he's also... Uh, very specific in what he wants. I mean, he uh, 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 can be very controlling. Mm. That's a little difficult for me. Mm -hmm. So there were times where uh, there was a little tension between us, let's sure, say. Sure, sure. Uh, but we always seemed to work it out. You know, I can't say that those tensions didn't come up. They did. Uh, but we always worked them out. But watching that show come together and getting to meet Pete, who was the uh, diametric opposite of what oh, one Pete would expect. Pete Townsend, yeah. Quiet, incredibly bright guy. He was a book editor at the time. He had given up performing live. Oh. Uh, he was there the whole time involved with he, the rehearsal process. He was process. there after the first, let's say, three weeks of rehearsal. Okay. So we're all doing preliminary staging. It was brilliant staging on Tez's part, I thought. Did it change a lot as as you went to previews or you you worked on it? I mean, or was it pretty? Some no. Des was. I think he really had this piece in his head and what it was going to look like. Okay. So it didn't change a lot. Nor did it change a lot from Broadway from from La Jolla to Broadway. Changed, but not a lot mm. to tell while we were rehearsing and everyone's having a great time and getting along really well. We're all partying together. Where it was just a great cast. There wasn't a, 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 a lemon in it. Mm. Everyone was absolutely terrific, both in La Jolla and in New York, where there were some cast changes. Got along great, enjoyed doing the show. People were serious about their work. There were eight good shows a week, every week. Mm. People really came in to do their work. There was rarely somebody out of that show. So you had to be, somebody had to be really sick to be out of that show. And one of the reasons for it was... I'll go back a little and say that while we were rehearsing it, this is in La Jolla, a very conservative community. We thought this show was going to be one of the great bombs of all time. You did. And that we thought that the big seller would be the Tommy earplugs in the lobby so that people <laughs> wouldn't have to hear the loud rock and roll music. And Des was bent on this being a rock and roll musical, and that sound was going to be pumped in La Jolla as well as New York. You were going to hear it. You were going to feel it against your chest. Wow. Rock and roll. Yeah. And there were people who could sing it. Oh, yeah. So we thought, you know, we're going to, the curtain's going to come down and the theater's going to be empty. Instead, right from the first preview, when the curtain was a little more than halfway down at the end of the show, you could see the people fly out of their seats, not just get up, fly up. Wow. 
it, it, it entertained them that much. And the same was true in New York. You know, uh, a couple of friends of mine joined the cast in New York, and we're rehearsing and getting ready for our first preview, and I say, you know, unless this is a lot different than La Jolla, wait till you see how people react to that. They love it. And they said, yeah, well, you know, I've been hit shows before. Okay. It was the the level of, I mean, at the end of the first act, you see people, you know, see people going crazy. It's incredible. So that would happen at the end of the show. When you're doing a show with people you like, who are as talented as those people in the, uh, were, who love the show, love the work, enjoy the singing, enjoy acting out that story, enjoy each other's company, you want to go to work. Yeah. Yeah, wait to go to work. It's true. It's so true. So... There was very little absence from that company. And for the longest time, every audience got a first night show because people were just happy to be on stage and happy to share that with them. And you were honored with a, a Tony nomination for this. Yeah, that was unbelievable. I mean, it was How? my first Broadway show, and that happened. Uh, first time... Uh, I mean... Karen and I had already been together for 20 years. We had always made our living as artists. She's, she's an actress. Yeah. Uh, and a brilliant one. She's won three Obies and a whole assortment of other awards that she well deserves. Uh, we'd always made our living as actors, but not a handsome one. Not a handsome one. Yeah. We paid our bills. We could buy a pair of jeans. <laughs> Maybe we could go out to dinner, but we had to order the chicken right. and split it. Yeah. <laughs> so this was my first Broadway show. And so to see a little extra zero on the paycheck was yeah. a big deal, even though the Dodgers were paying one-tenth of what the people across, across the street in Crazy Few were making. Yeah. Mm. And they made no bones about it. They, they, they were not apologetic. They said, look, it's our business to pay back our investors, and we're going to pay you as little as we can. And wow. if you want, you can turn the job down. <laughs> they were. They did not apologize for the fact that they were not uh, apt to pay a lot of money, which I appreciated. They were upfront about it, and I could turn it down. Mm -hmm. Didn't. It was very nice to have that extra zero on the paycheck. Mm. Uh, although it was not a lot of money, really. Right. How long were you with Tommy? Right from the beginning till it closed. Which is not that long. No, uh, but it, still. It played a, about a year and a half on Broadway and maybe six months in La Jolla. So two years in yeah, total. Yeah, And I enjoyed every minute. Oh. It's I, just, I just ran into a friend at a show last night who was in Jersey Boys for 11 years. 11 years? Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I mean, he, he bought a new head. <laughs> I made so much money. I mean, I couldn't turn it down. Can't even you imagine. Know, so I just went down to Argentina and got a new head. Did you like it? <laughs> I said, that's why I didn't recognize you. You have a different head. <laughs> Imagine so, if Tommy had run longer. What would, what would be different for you? I, different I, head, I, different I was, when it closed, I, I was ready. You were ready. Yeah. yeah. So that was fine. I, mean, I did nine Christmases of Christmas Carol. Yeah. Uh, so nine. I did. Nine. Well, that's almost like doing a long run of a show, except you just get to keep revisiting it year after year. I'll yeah, be but a, it was a different cast. It but. was. It, uh, the main part of the cast was generally the same, with oh. few changes. The Scrooge always changed. Ah. 
and occasionally one of the other ghosts of Christmas past or present would change. Uh, but the big change would be the change of Scrooge because that's the character that I had my one big scene and song with. Uh, and I got to work with a lot of incredible people. And I have the list. I Please, gonna... I want to know this. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I looked it up. I <laughs> love that. <laughs> I was just talking about Scrooge. Lisa Shriver? Yeah. Yeah. She was She was one of the, one of the dancers. It was a yes. dancer in the show and one of the uh, uh, assistants to the, I don't know what you would call him, the... The, the the guy who taught the choreography to the new like people. the dance year. captain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's hear this list of people that you played opposite of. Okay. First year was Terry Mann. Oh. Who, who I knew, uh, but it was the first time we'd worked together, and we had an absolutely incredible time. Then Tony Randall. <sighs> now, here's a good one. Tony's gone now, so I can tell the story. I know every television episode of The Odd Couple with Tony and Klugman. I, by heart, I loved that show. And he was incredibly funny and human. Yeah. So I walk in for the first day of rehearsal and I say, Hello, Mr. Randall. And he says, Hello, Mr. Kendall. Let's, you know, <laughs> very, very nice guy. No star bullshit. He yeah. rides the bus. I mean, he's just not that kind of guy. He's a good guy. Yeah. Hardworking. But. No sense of humor. He had no idea what was funny. And there was a bunch of stuff in this thing that's funny. So we'd be working on it, and I would say, you know, Tony, if you take a beat before that, it's going to get a laugh. And he'd say, why? It's funny. (laughs) (laughs) So we're working, and we get to know each other, and he says, look, for the odd couple, it was Klugman who knew about funny. Every mm-hmm. time we had to do something, I'd say, you know, Jack, what do I do? And he would tell me, and I would do it. He said, I'm an actor. I'm not a comedian. I don't know what's funny and what's not funny. Wow. So here is this guy who had made me laugh consistently for years playing, I, I, I think, the, the epic Felix Unger. And he is in ways Felix Unger. That is mind blowing. Yeah, uh, and he's not a funny guy. He <laughs> loves to, he loves to tell st- anecdotes, stories, yes. jokes, things like that. That funny he knows, but scripted funny, not really. He made a wonderful Scrooge, however. We had a great time. He was seventy seven when he did that show, and doing fifteen shows a week is enough to kill a twenty year old. Yeah. and Scrooge is on stage for the whole show. And Scrooge, yeah. Also, there's a, a part in the show where he, he he's lifted in a harness. Yeah. He has to wear that harness for the first maybe 35, 40 minutes of the show. It's very uncomfortable. And at one point, there was an accident with it, and he was badly bruised. Badly bruised. Oh. I mean, he showed me. in black and blue all over his thighs and very badly bruised. He never missed a show. We, a, in in the, the number of weeks of that act. show was done varied in the years, and it was six or seven weeks of it at that time of 15 shows a week. That means you start at 10 o'clock in the morning, you end at 10 o'clock at night, you have a 10-show weekend. It's enough to kill anybody. It's insane. Uh, and Tony never missed a show. That's insane. Wonderful guy, a lot of fun. Wow. Tim Curry, who was incredible. Oh, my. One year they divided it between Roddy McDowell and Hal Linden. Oh. And I told you Roddy with the... 
Elizabeth Taylor. I mean, <laughs> anybody you uh. ever heard of. Lauren Bacall would, would just, you'd come back from a, you know, from somewhere to your dressing room and there's no Lauren is. Bacall is sitting in his dressing room. I like your nose. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Amazing. Fre- um, Roger Daltrey did it. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Who I already knew, had met a whole bunch of times from during the Tommy, Tommy years. Yeah. yeah. Incredibly gracious uh, guy. Very talented. Jim Dale, who you know, oh, yeah. Roberts was terrific. Uh, Frank Langella, oh, who you'd sh- think, my God, this is a huge guy. You know, yeah. Scrooge is supposed to be. He was incredible. Mm. Not uh, incredible. And put his own stamp on that. He yeah. discussed certain uh, blocking that had never changed. He wanted to change, and for good reason. Um, uh he made suggestions that were accepted by Stroman, who was directing the show at that point because Mike Ockrent had passed away. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, so the, uh, Frank was the first year that, that uh, Mike wasn't there to direct the show fully. I, I'm, I can't remember the first year that it started. The it was 95? Was Walter I... Charles. It was before <laughs> they decided on the, uh, on the uh, celebrity Scrooges. Yeah. So that was Walter Charles. That's great. Played mm. Scrooge. Oh, yeah. And I actually auditioned for that year. I was still in Tommy, and, uh-huh. I, and I auditioned. And, you know, according yeah, yeah. to them, I was in consideration, I guess, but didn't get it. And then Tommy closed, and then they offered me um, Marley. Marley, yeah. Wow, what That's a uh, what a great run yeah, to be able to a lot of fun, but very, 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 very exhausting. Because each holiday season for ten years or nine years or however long, you, you know that you're <laughs> really not going to be social. You're not going to do anything. because yeah. ten to do, ten is a I mean that is a you're long not day. Do anything but most people in the days that that show was done for six weeks, and you would rehearse a full four weeks before each year, every year. It had a full four-week rehearsal, uh, like a, a new Broadway show, because there was a new Scrooge. Right. And sometimes a new Christmas past or present. So there was a full four-week rehearsal. And then if you ran for six weeks as well, at the end of those six weeks, it took you another six to recover. Yeah. That's how deep the exhaustion was. Sure. Jeez. So, Paul, I have to tell you, we have a fan who uh, has sent over a list of seven questions <laughs> That they'd like to ask you if you'd be willing to answer them. Well, let's hear them, and I'll tell you whether I'm willing to answer them. Let's hear what they are. Okay, this is from uh, one of our uh, wonderful listeners. Uh, we only get a Twitter handle. Oh, no, we actually have her name. Her name is Emily. Oh, Emily. I know Emily. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you know Emily? <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. How what? I was, say, I was like, fell no. for that. Why did I fall I know, for that? Brooklyn and Sinker. Paul is such a great actor. <laughs> and like, I made you believe that. So, Paul, the first question is, when will you return back to the stage? When are we going to see you in something next? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, and here's a, uh, a, a uh, unsettling answer. Show business being what it is, uh, I would say when around when I was uh, 62, I was struck off the list, as the British would say. My career stopped dead. It's as if I had moved to Australia. Dead. This is, you know, I've been working for a long time. I certainly expected from the heyday of yeah. my career that there would, you know, there would be uh, ups and downs. Dead. 
It's as if I never did anything in my life. I have no friends who work in the theater or people that I have worked for who might want to work with me again. Uh, the uh, uh, somebody somebody uh, 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 stamped the scarlet letter on my forehead, and I became dead to the world. The last thing I did was uh, at the Old Globe uh, Winter's Tale. I played Autolycus, good part, yeah, very challenging. I hadn't done a Shakespeare play in thirty years. I quite enjoyed that. That's the last thing I did, and that's over two years ago. So that can happen to you. Oh yeah, let's change. That's, that. that's an element of showbiz. <laughs> let's, let's really change that. Let's My speak goodness. to God. God, God. <laughs> where are you, Lord? Okay, <laughs> question two. Uh-huh. What has been your favorite stage role you have ever played? Don't have one. Great. Next. Number three. Oh, number three. There are three questions tied into this one. We're going to ask them anyway. Ready? What is your favorite color? Blue. Favorite food? Ooh. Too many foods I like. I couldn't pick a favorite. And a favorite animal? I, I'll pick a favorite. Steak. Oh, steak. steak. Nice. How do you get it prepared? Medium, medium rare, rare? Uh, rare. Nice. Me too. Rare? No, God, no. What do you do? I'm, I'm, I'm medium or medium well. I'm, oh, rare. Yeah, don't judge me. Let's okay. Go, move on. No judging. Favorite animal? Don't have one. Good. Great. Well, we've already discussed this, what it was like working with Aaron's and Flaherty. Ooh, this is this is a hard one. I don't know if you're going to answer it. She wants to know who is better, Mencken and Schwartz or Aaron's and Flaherty? Uh, I, I talked about them both. There isn't a better there. There You have uh, two... Uh, you you have four uh, extraordinarily talented people, uh, different approach to their work, uh, all very successful and for good reason. Mm. Marvelous. Um, so, you know, can't pick a favorite there. You can only admire uh, that level of uh, talent uh, packed into one man or woman. Uh, and feel lucky to have uh, had them as collaborators at some point. Oh, how so. lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> one that I think we're all asking, have you seen Hamilton? No. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and then finally, this is this. I, I love this question. It's a question I want to ask you. She wants to know, do you think that you would play a good daddy Warbucks in Annie? Has that crossed your radar? Uh, hasn't crossed my radar. I don't think... I don't think so. I think it needs somebody who is uh, physically bigger than me, more mm. imposing. Mm. I mean, I take up space on stage, mm. big oh, time. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. yes. But not that way. Certain parts in- require somebody who's physically imposing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. unless you shrink down the whole cast, I mean, if I was directing it, yeah, and somebody like me came in, I'd say, God, that guy is really good, and I think he'd be fantastic in the show, but can we make him bigger? Yeah. It needs a bigger There's guy. There's going to be a who, thickness about him. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, who, I hear that. Uh, has a certain physical presence on stage unless you shrink down the rest of the cast. <laughs> you know yeah. what we'll do. <laughs> you get munchkins to play we'll all of the other roles. <laughs> Although, we'll do that in Wizard of Oz and rap and, yeah, and go to the Muni and it'll be great. Yeah, that's that'll done. be fun. We're so far away. Nobody, exactly. nobody will even see anything. Um Paul, we are we are so excited that you sat down with us today. My our, our time is so limited with you, and we want you to get on with your day. Um, this has been so wonderful. And the last thing that the lovely young lady said in her letter it echoes our sentiments, which is thank you so much for an amazing career. Thank you so much for, for giving us so many wonderful memories mm-hmm. in the theater. But also, just for us, thank you for being so encouraging and so positive about the audition process 
and what it takes to be an actor in this industry. I think it's inspired so many people today. In the art form, yeah. Thank yeah. you. It, it really is inspirational. Well, that makes you me said. feel great. Yeah. Uh, and uh, thanks uh, for asking me to do it. I've enjoyed yeah. every minute. Good. Uh, Us too. And I hope uh, someone benefits from it in some way or gets a laugh. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> at least we have, if nobody else, but I'm sure many others will. Oh, indeed. Yeah. Paul, thank you so much. My pleasure. Take everybody. Care. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.